Africa rise and shine Africa zola Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective and we're coming to you live in Johannesburg, South Africa. We are on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 11925 kHz on the 19 meter band to West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu, in studio with Anne Musa, Tabisa Luhoko and Figile Lungwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, Zimbabwe opposition leader Tandai Biti returns to court today to face public violence charges. And Chile's Michelle Bachelet chosen to be the next UN human rights chief. In economics news, South Africa and Zambia boost trade relations. And in sports news, South African golfer withdraws from PGA Championship. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. Zimbabwe's president-elect Emerson Mnangagwa says opposition leader Tendai Biti was released following his intervention. However, Mnangagwa has warned that no one is above the law. Biti was granted bail of 5,000 US dollars by a court in Harare and ordered to hand over the title deeds to his house. He's been charged with unofficial or false declaration of election results and inciting violence. Six people were killed in Harare when the army fired live ammunition at rioters last week. The protesters were angry after the results of the parliamentary elections were announced. Mnangagwa says because of the serious nature of the allegations, due process will continue in the matter. However, Mnangagwa also says he will strive for unity, peace and dialogue in Zimbabwe. South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa have held talks on bilateral relations focusing on political and economic development with his Zambian counterpart Edgar Lungo and Lusaka. They also engaged on the political developments, including security matters within the SADC region. President Ramaphosa's visit to Zambia comes amid political tensions in neighboring Zimbabwe. The president says it's South Africa's mission to enhance relations with other African countries and create better opportunities for all Africans. And as we move around, we talk about things economic, things political, how to improve the lives of our people and how to entrench democracy and peace and the respect for human rights. And this is what defines what we are about in the region. And I can say this advisedly as a chairperson of SADC as we look forward to our SADC summit next, year, uh, next week when I will hand over the chairpersonship of SADC to, uh, to President Gengop of Namibia.
Military sources in Nigeria say militant group Boko Haram has killed at least 15 soldiers in the northeastern state of Bono. An official from Nigeria's disaster agency was also killed in the ambush at a military base. It's the third such attack on a military target in the region in less than a month. Eleven Fulani civilians have been killed kidnapped and killed in the latest bout of ethnic violence to hit Mali, according to local groups in the central region of Mopti. Officials have, however, said 14 people were killed. The attack on Tuesday was attributed to hunters from the Dogon community. Violence between nomadic Fulani herders and Bambara and Dogon farmers have escalated in central Mali over the past three years. This has been fueled by accusations that the Fulanis are colluding with jihadists. And finally, as violence escalates in and around Gaza, the Israeli security cabinet has ordered the army to continue acting with force against what it calls terrorist elements. The United Nations says it's deeply alarmed at the current situation. This is the third major escalation since July and came despite attempts by UN officials and Egypt to secure a long-term truce between Israel and Hamas, the movement that runs the Gaza Strip. The BBC's Anne Bushby reports. Even as the security cabinet met, sirens sounded in Israeli communities near the border warning of incoming rockets while Israeli forces attacked targets inside Gaza. A multi-storey building described by Israel as a headquarters of the militant group Hamas was flattened. Palestinian officials say 18 people were injured. Earlier, three Palestinians, including a pregnant woman and her 18-month-old child, were killed. A number of Israelis have been injured in rocket attacks. And that's the news. Headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Channel Africa. Kultanjoy Addis Ababa. Africa, rise and shine. I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. This is Simon Muchemwa in Harare, Zimbabwe. Jean-Noël Bamwesi, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. This is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. Informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. And I am Dana Wanyonyi for Channel Africa in Mombasa. Zimbabwe's former finance minister and opposition leader, advocate Tendai Biti, appeared in court on Thursday to be charged with stoking post-election violence. Biti, whose People's Democratic Party had formed an election alliance with Nelson Chamisa's Movement for Democratic Change, sought asylum in neighboring Zambia on Wednesday, but was deported back to Zimbabwe. He was also charged with falsely and unlawfully announcing results of the July 30th election, which 
Shamisa rejected as fraudulent and is set to challenge in the Constitutional Court today. If found guilty, BT could face up to 10 years in jail, a cash fine or both. He was released on bail. For more on this, Pumelele Zondi spoke to our correspondent in Zimbabwe, Simon Muchema. Uh, there are so many conditions that uh, Tendai Beach has got to put up with, uh, but uh, these conditions came uh, through a consent by the state, which is the prosecution department, and the lawyers. Uh, so there were three lawyers uh, who were representing uh, Tendai Beach. That is uh, Alec Nchadi Hama, there is uh, Denford Halimani, and then Beatrice Muteswa. And uh, they appeared before Magistrate Francis and then the bail was granted to the tune of 5,000 U.S. dollars cash. And today, um, uh, was ordered to stay at his house, the address that he gave the police. And then um, uh, he was ordered to release his passport into the hands of the clerk of court. They also ordered him to surrender uh, some title deeds of his house. And then they also barred him from um, holding any press conference and uh, addressing any rally. But Tendai uh, Beach is being charged of two offenses. The first offense is that he unlawfully announced a presidential result to the effect that uh, Nelson Chamisa had won the elections on the 31st of July. And then the second one uh, is emanating from the violence that took place in the capital, in Harare, whereby six people ended up getting shot and killed. And uh, according to the prosecution or the state, Tendai Bito was seen uh, at the ZANU-PF provincial headquarters and he partook in the burning of cars, destroying of offices and so forth. So he's also charged with inciting uh, public violence that ended up uh, getting nasty in the capital. So far, he has not been given the opportunity to say uh, his complaints regarding the way he was arrested and what really transpired at the border at Chirundu on his way to Zambia. That is going to take place at 9 a.m. Mm. Um, the bail itself, how much was it? The bail was 5,000 U.S. dollars. Uh, there was no objection by the lawyers uh, representing uh, the NIDT. In actual fact, they agreed on the amount. And uh, the magistrate could not do anything but just to grant the bail. Of course, we're hearing some social media unconfirmed reports saying that... Uh, it was granted bail because uh, Emerson Mnangagwa had intervened because the American embassy, the Australian embassy, the Canadian embassy and all the EU uh, governments represented here in Zimbabwe had issued a strong statement uh, condemning what is happening to Miti and they said they, they must ensure that uh, he's in safe hands and his safety is guaranteed. And maybe, maybe that's why we're seeing a sudden change on the part of government and they've granted him bail unopposed. Mm. Um, I, there are reports that he was arrested um, on the border with Zambia. Was he on the Zambian side of things or the Zimbabwean side of things? According to his lawyer, Gilbert Piri, who is based in Lusaka, he told us in the morning that uh, today it was arrested at the one-stop border uh, shop, which is uh, at the border, right at Chirundu. It's one building whereby if you get inside from the Zimbabwean side, you are on the Zimbabwean side. But uh, within that building, at the center of the building, that's where the border is. In the demarcation, uh, you are now on the Zambian side. There's no line. There's no clear indication that you're on Zimbabwe or on, on Zambia. But according to the lawyer, he's saying that he had already finished 
uh, with the uh, Zimbabwean side and was now on the uh, Zambian side when the law enforcement agent approached him. So by law, they were not supposed to have apprehended him or even tried to arrest him because he had crossed the line and he was in a foreign land, which is Zambia. But the commotion that happened at the border was as a result of the manner the security agents tried to apprehend the diabetes. And this is the result. He ended up being in the hands of the customs officials, military and the police to safeguard the security. They took him to Lusaka, but later on in the morning, even though there was a condition by the high court in Lusaka, they still deported him back to Kariba, the Zimbabwean side, and was later taken to Harare. Mm. Um, and have we heard anything from the Zambian authorities about why they decided to take him to Zimbabwe, even though the court had said that he must remain in Zambia? So up to now, we are yet to know why they did that. But, uh, you know, this is politics. On one hand, we are also hearing experts, political analysts, who are suggesting that there was no way the Zambian government was going to uh, grant asylum to Tendai Biti because uh, Sadak appears to be the same. The uh, allegations by a political analyst that Sadak is only bent on uh, uh, defending the political gains of uh, fellow members or member countries in Sadak and not on the democracy of citizens in Sadak. Simon, we do know, as you've said, that um, Tendai Viti is not allowed to hold any press conferences at his house. Have his lawyer said anything, though? The lawyer said, just explained what happened in court. And uh, because Tendai Viti is yet to, give, to be given the opportunity to explain what happened at the border when he was arrested. So they were saying it's subjudice for the lawyers to, to say anything regarding what is going to be said. Mm. So it, it, it's, quite a, it's quite an issue as it stands at the moment, but we are not so sure uh, on what really happened to Tendai As our correspondent in Zimbabwe, Simon Muchema, on the line with Spumilele Zondi. The UN General Assembly will convene on Friday to consider the Secretary-General's nomination of former Chilean President Michelle Bachelet as the next High Commissioner for Human Rights. She will replace Jordan Zaid Rad al-Hussein at the conclusion of just one term at the end of August. Show in Bryce Peace reports. The Secretary-General's Deputy Spokesperson, Farhan Haq, finally confirmed media reports of the pick for the UN's top human rights job. The Secretary-General, following consultations with the chairs of the regional groups of member states, has informed the General Assembly of his intention to appoint Michelle Bachelet of Chile as the next United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights. Bachelet became Chile's first woman president from 2006 to 2010, where heads of state are barred from serving consecutive terms. She then left the country for New York to lead the newly formed UN Agency for Women's Empowerment and Gender Equality, but returned to her homeland to successfully run for a second term as president from 2014 until March this year. This was her speaking as the first executive director of UN Women in 2013. Violence against women is pervasive and knows no borders. It does not discriminate according to nationality, ethnicity, social class, culture or religion. And this is why men, women and young people have raised their voices in every region to say one thing. Enough is enough. People demand an immediate end to impunity. They insist on the protection of the rights of women and girls to live in dignity, free of violence and discrimination. And let me say this, 
There can be no peace, no progress, no equality without women's full and equal rights and participation. The High Commissioner is unique among Undersecretaries General at the United Nations in that the nomination by the Secretary General must be confirmed by the General Assembly with due regard to geographical rotation for a fixed term of four years with the possibility of one renewal for another fixed term of four years. The incumbent, Zaidrad al-Hussein, hails from Jordan and his predecessor, Navi Pillay, is South African. We recently asked the current High Commissioner what advice he would give his successor. It's the same advice that Navi Pillay gave to me. I got two pieces of advice. One, uh, be fair, and in other words, don't privilege or discriminate against any country. Uh, be fair. If you're going to criticize Bahrain, you have to criticize China. If you're going to criticize uh, uh, Mali, you, you should criticize the United States. In other words, no one should be somehow above a, uh, a, an, a comment when it comes to human rights. Uh, the second point, uh, I thought of coming out slowly and doing this reset and, and uh, spending six months adjusting because um, I, when Navi Pillay left, uh, her relationship with a number of countries was strained and I thought, and someone said to me, no, just come out swinging and that's what I did. Advocacy and rights group Amnesty International warned that Bachelet's nomination comes at a tumultuous time for the human rights community, with freedoms enshrined in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights under sustained threat around the world. I'm Sherman Bricepees in New York. Gauteng Premier David Makura says women in South Africa are not yet emancipated. He spoke at the Union Buildings in Pretoria where thousands of women celebrated Women's Day. Makura and some women walked from Lilliangoy Square in the city centre to the Union Building as they retraced the steps of the 1956 marches when 20,000 women marched against the past laws. Lila Machnas reports. Gauteng Premier David Makura says women must continue with the struggle to free them from patriarchy, sexism, discrimination and gender-based violence. He added that boys must be taught from a young age to respect women. We must raise our boys in a way that they understand they are equal. Women, men and women are equal. We parents are not doing our job. We have to raise our children in a way they must share responsibilities. At home, they must share responsibilities. We must drum it in their heads. To abuse a woman is a crime. He added that there must be solidarity between men and women if women are to be truly emancipated. In order to achieve gender equality, we need solidarity between men and women. The struggle for women's liberation is not only the struggle of women. It's the struggle that men must join and the men, men must say when there are crimes committed by men against women, men must say not in our name. The next generation of South African women says hard work and women supporting women will uplift women in South Africa. Anything is possible if you put your mind to it. All it takes is dedication and hard work. If we put our minds together, we can move helping forward. Mm.
let us move everybody forward. Let us join together as women and support support this world because we are the future. The women were entertained by DJs for the remainder of the day at the union buildings. I am Leela Magnus in Pretoria. South Africa and Zambia have signed a joint binational commission which will see more trade advancing between the two countries. Assigning ceremony saw Minister of International Relations Lindua Sisulu and Foreign Affairs Minister of Zambia Joseph Malangi put pen to paper, elevating the bilateral relations that have been going on between Lusaka and Pretoria. Both President Sil Ramaphosa and Edgar Lungu were present to witness the ceremony. Abongile Dumako reports from the Zambian capital, Lusaka. President of the Republic of South Africa, my dear brother, and your delegation, you are most welcome to Lusaka, Zambia. I know lots of members of your delegation are very familiar with Lusaka, Zambia in particular. So please feel at home. Uh, Time for speeches is long gone. It's time to eat, I've been told. Mr. President, just say hello to the people. And you propose a toast, of course. President Cyril Ramaphosa and his delegation receiving a warm welcome from the Zambian President Edgar Lungu at the country's capital city of Lusaga. The state visit conducted by Ramaphosa follows numerous others that he has been embarking on throughout SADC since he was elected President of South Africa. He says it's South Africa's mission to enhance relations with other African countries and create better opportunities for all Africans. Ramaphosa told the Zambian cabinet that South Africa's foreign policy is derived from the continent. We see Africa as the bedrock of our foreign policy. We see Africa as the origin of our foreign policy. And our region is important. And we want to see integration at a number of levels, which will enable trade to happen between our various countries. We want to have development in our region. We just want to uplift the lives of our people in this region. Ramaphosa says if it wasn't for the countries like Zambia, maybe democracy would have taken longer to be realized in South Africa. Later this morning, he will jet off to the Democratic Republic of Congo to engage in talks with his counterpart who is outgoing Joseph Kabila. His visit comes just days before he hands over the chairpersonship of SADC to Haig Gagob, the president of Namibia. Ramaphosa is expected to persuade Kabila for a smooth and peaceful election this coming December in the DRC. I'm Abongile Dumago in Lusaga, Zambia. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. South Africa's Pan-Africanist Congress of Azania, PAC, has kicked off its Unity Conference in Kimberley in the Northern Cape Province. This after a court interdict filed by party President Narius Muloto to prevent the conference from going ahead was struck off the South Gauteng High Court on Wednesday. Neo Budumela reports. 
Despite concerns that the conference may not go ahead this week, members of the PAC gathered at the Maibuye Multipurpose Centre in Kimberley for the Unity Conference. At the conference, PAC Member of Parliament Lutando Minda called on members of the party to take responsibility for the deteriorated state of the party. Minda says members at the conference are now seeking to rebuild ahead of the 2019 elections. All of those that will be uh, gathered here, uh, they should take responsibility for the demise of the PAC. But at the end of the day, uh, people will have to go back to branches, regularize their membership in terms of the PAC constitution, uh, so that at the end of the day they come and discuss about the future of the PAC. Battles for the leadership of the PAC have dogged the party over the past 10 years. Recently, Three leaders, Lutando Mbinda, Narius Moloto and Litla Pampasele, have each claimed to be the true president of the party. While Mbinda and Mpasele committed to attend the conference, current president Moloto did not. But PAC veteran and member of the conference organizing committee, Mike Muedani, says the conference is not about personalities. All the members of the PAC, they own this, this organization. There's not one single individual that has ever owned the PAC, that owns the PAC, or that will ever own the PAC. The conference will close on Sunday. I'm Neo Budumela in Kimberley. It was one of the most deadly attacks carried out by the Islamic State group during the Syrian war. More than 250 people from the Druze ethnic and religious minority were killed last month in the southwest of the country. The terrorists also took dozens of hostages, including 18 children. The BBC's Martin Patience now reports they are still being held hostage. It was a surprise IS attack on a string of Druze villages. By early morning, locals were grabbing whatever weapons they could find and fighting back. But the attack had begun hours earlier, under the cover of darkness. IS militants began knocking on doors and then calling people out by their names. Faris Abu Ammar explains what happened next. My uncle has a daily habit of preparing coffee, which he serves to his guests. He thought IS were guests. He welcomed them with coffee cups. Then they took him out and killed him on his doorstep. Farisi's uncle, as well as his mother, were among the hundreds killed by the militants. But IS also took hostages, including three of Farisi's nieces and nephews. Rafat, Lana and Yarob are 8, 10 and 12 years old. They love football, singing and poetry. But after one of the hostages was executed, Faris was brutally honest about the chances of them surviving. Sometimes I think there's hope that they'll come back. But other times, when I think about this terrorist organization, I don't think so. The IS attack came as Syrian state media was reporting in the army retaking control of the southwest of the country. At their height, the jihadists took over vast swathes of Syria. Now, like the rebels, they've largely been pushed out of territory they once controlled. But political analyst Makram Rabah 
says the Syrian government capitalises on IS attacks to further its agenda. It is very convenient at this time, particularly when people assume that there's, an, there's a compromise between the Americans and the Russians, that such a massacre is perpetrated against particularly the Druze, sending a message to the other communities that even a militant community like the Druze, who is able to defend itself, might suffer 300, 400 casualties, and this is what will happen to you if you refuse any sort of political settlement in the region. Now many in Sweda are taking things into their own hands. This video shows a mob about to lynch an IS militant. But anger won't bring the hostages back. And the families have no idea whether their sons and daughters are still alive. That report by the BBC's Martin Patience. Swiss chocolate wouldn't be Swiss chocolate without African cocoa. <laughs> you know, it's funny when you think about it that way because you realize just how important Africa is to the global economy. And as long as we are deemed to be inferior by the community out there, nothing's ever going to change. I believe it's one of the uh, ancient Greek philosophers who said that when we teach, we'll learn twice. Hello, Africa. Welcome to 1000 African Voices on Channel Africa. 1000 African Voices every Saturday morning at 9am with repeats on Sundays between 10 and 11 as well as on Monday morning between 3 and 4 Central African Time 1000 African Voices with me, Awurengwi C on Channel Africa the voice of the African Renaissance from an African perspective Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. On the headlines, Western governments and the United Nations have expressed concern after Zimbabwean opposition figure Tendai Beatty appeared in court following his dramatic attempt to flee to neighboring Zambia and apply for for political asylum. Eleven Fulani civilians have been kidnapped and killed in the latest bout of ethnic violence to hit Mali, according to local groups in the central region of Mopti. And heavy floods have forced the evacuation of over 1,600 people, most of them campers in southern France. Those are the stories making headlines.
Thank you. And if emergency fuel is not immediately allowed into the Gaza Strip, five key hospitals could be forced to close and other vital facilities could grind to a halt. According to David Cardin, head of the UN humanitarian office, OCHA, in the occupied Palestinian territory, since the 2nd of August, the Israeli authorities have stopped fuel entering the enclave in response to the launching of incendiary kites into the country across the Gaza border. Cardin spoke to UN Radio's Mustafa Al-Khamal. Gaza has been affected by a chronic electricity deficit for more than a decade, severely disrupting the delivery of basic health care, water and sanitation services, and undermining already vulnerable livelihoods and living conditions. And currently, there's nearly 2 million Palestinian residents of Gaza who receive electricity for no more than four hours each day. So as a result, you have public and NGO-supported hospitals, uh, water treatment sites, sewage treatment facilities, and also solid waste collection services have been forced to rely um, on backup generators to maintain provision of these critical services. Now, uh, since the 2nd of August, uh, the Israeli authorities have prohibited the entry of fuel into Gaza in response to the continuous launching of incendiary kites and balloons uh, from Gaza uh, into Israel, which they considered to be a security threat. Um, and this also followed an early restriction on the entry of fuel that lasted from the 16th to 24th of July. So right now, we need at least 60,000 litres of emergency fuel for delivery to about 55 critical health and water and sanitation facilities across Gaza. We also have a problem um, with the funding for emergency fuel uh, because it's anticipated to run out uh, in the second half of August. And we need about 4.5 million uh, to ensure that a minimum level of services can continue to run until the end of the year. And what are the risks if the fuel didn't get in immediately? Well, the immediate risks are that uh, five hospitals might face possible closure in the coming three days. I should say that hospitals and other critical healthcare services have already um, reduced their operations. And those at the greatest risk are the there's more than 2,000 patients in Gaza's hospital who are dependent uh, on uh, electricity to enable them to receive care um, and treatment. Uh, and also medical services for more than uh, 1.6 million other Palestinians um, may suffer from the lack of emergency fuel um, at the 54 main health facilities. Uh, the other uh, facilities at risk are about 40 of 132 water and sanitation facilities where fuel stocks are only sufficient for about one to two days. So, you know, we're really faced with a situation where you have more than a million Palestinians at risk of potential disease due to possible sewage overflow at around um, the 41 main sewage pumping stations in the Gaza Strip. We heard you visited Gaza. What did you see there on the ground? And what is Ocha doing to manage the situation? Well, I went to Gaza um, to see the situation for myself, also to advocate with Hamas, the de facto authorities on the ground, to see if they can do more to alleviate the uh, fuel situation. Um, In terms of what we're doing, since the crisis became very chronic in 2013, the UN has been facilitating the provision of this emergency fuel to 80 critical hospitals and health clinics, the water and sewage treatment sites, 
as well as uh, the solid waste collection services, you know, to try to ensure that these services can continue despite interruptions in electricity flow. And as the electricity crisis has been deteriorating each year, uh, the number of services needing emergency fuel has grown. And currently, an average of 950,000 litres is distributed by the UN every month uh, for backup generators to about 250 critical facilities. And OCHA has been working tirelessly to mobilise funding for this uh, UN fuel programme. We're also in constant negotiation with the Israeli authorities to try to ensure uh, access of emergency fuel uh, into Gaza and other commodities as well via the Karom Shalom crossing, um, which is controlled by Israel. And, you know, this negotiation, we'll have private negotiations with the Israeli authorities, but we've also, uh, we're increasingly going public right now, you know, in order to try to uh, resolve this desperate situation because, you know, we don't want a, an outbreak of disease or, you know, other public uh, health concerns. Speaking of this uh, contact with Israelis, are there any indications that there will be a positive response to UN calls to allow the entry of fuel? I mean, I think this decision is taken at the political level, and we've been uh, uh, dealing with the uh, COGAT, which is a part of the Israeli government that uh, administers the occupied territories, and uh, they have been taking our request to the higher level. You know, we've been trying to explain you know, very clearly what the humanitarian impact is. We've been reminding the Israeli authorities of their obligations under uh, international law, and certainly in the past, um, our advocacy has uh, resulted in shifts in, in policy, and we certainly hope that it'll be the case this time as well. That's David Carden, head of the UN Humanitarian Office, OCHA, and he was speaking to UN Radio's Mustafa Al-Khamal. In January, a Dutch woman of 29 laid down to die. In the Netherlands, euthanasia has been legal since 2002, so hers was a death sanctioned by the state. But this young woman didn't have a terminal illness like cancer. She was allowed to end her life on account of what she claimed was unbearable suffering due to long-term psychiatric illness. Last year, 6,585 people elected to die by euthanasia or doctor-assisted suicide in the Netherlands. 83 of them applied and were accepted on psychological grounds. The BBC's Linda Presley visited the Netherlands to find out more about Aurelia's story. You might find this report upsetting. I'm Aurelia Brouwers, 29 years my name is Aurelia Brouwers. I'm 29 years old and I've chosen voluntary euthanasia. I've chosen this because I have a lot of mental health issues. I suffer unbearably and hopelessly. Every breath I take is torture. Hers is an exceptional case. Aurelia Browers was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder and a string of other psychiatric conditions. This recording of her was made by the Dutch TV station, RTL News, in the days before she died. Sander Paulus was the reporter. She had a message to tell about euthanasia for people who are in, in psychiatric problems, and she really wanted me to be there and our cameraman. So it was really welcoming, and it was really strange at the same time, because I stepped into a life 
which would only last for another two weeks. In RTL's documentary, Aurelia is often distressed and she battles self-harm. Sometimes she looks heavily medicated and she says she's never really known happiness. Dutch law allows euthanasia if a patient's suffering is deemed unbearable with no prospect of improvement. I asked Sander Paulus how he experienced her in those last weeks of her life. She was really not as stable during the day. She was very tired sometimes and then she, she began repeat herself. You just felt like there was a lot of pressure in her head. She didn't speak that well anymore. Except when we talked about the euthanasia itself. She was very clear on that. But does clarity mean someone has the capacity to choose death over life? This is what Aurelia told RTL News. If I'd been mentally incompetent, I would never have been able to make this decision to have euthanasia. They wouldn't have given permission. It can take months and even years for someone in Holland to be approved for euthanasia on psychological grounds. Dr Kit van Mechelen assesses psychiatric patients and performs euthanasia. I ask her if she could be certain a death wish in the case of someone like Aurelia wasn't actually part of her illness. I think you never can be 100% sure of that, but you must have done all the best to help them diminish the symptoms of their pathology. But, I mean, in personality disorders, a death wish is not uncommon. And if that is a consistent death wish and they've had their treatments for their personality disorders, it's a death wish the same as in a cancer patient who says, I don't want to go to the end, I want to stop before. This is one view on one side of the debate. People like Aurelia Browers with borderline disorder are often stigmatised. They may self-harm, have intense feelings of anger and be very unstable. Professor Frank Kurselman, one of Holland's most outspoken critics of euthanasia in cases of mental illness, believes psychiatrists should never collude with clients who claim they want to die. These are very difficult to treat patients, but I did that <laughs> all my career. It is possible to go on and not be contaminated as psychiatrists by their lack of hope. These patients lost hope, but, but you can stay beside them and you can give them hope and you can let them know that you will never give them up. I mean, Aurelia, as I understand it, she was somebody who had been seeking euthanasia for, for, for a long time at her young age. So she was somebody who was very determined. How could I know, how could anybody know, huh, that it was not a sign of her psychiatric disease? The fact that one is thinking about it for, for, for a long period, that one can rationalise about it, does not mean that it's not a sign of the disease. So as a psychiatrist, then, you think that you can never know if somebody's death wish is part of their psychiatric illness. You can't separate those. Yes, that's what I say. That report by the BBC's Linda Presley. Welcome to Change Your Game on Channel Africa, the African perspective. We are coming to you from Johannesburg, right here in South Africa. I'm Asanda Beda, your host. Change Your Game, the program that promotes open discussion and social dialogue as we highlight real issues in the African entrepreneurship ecosystem. 
Trevor Mumba now joins us in studio to talk about his entrepreneurial and personal journey. Welcome to Change Your Game, Trevor. Thank you so much. Um, it's an honor to be here. Palesa Mukubong, who's a designer. Welcome, Palesa, to Change Your Game. Thank you. Your role at the fourth annual Fashion Without Borders event? I just know that I need to arrive and, and, <laughs> okay. and do my part and do it really, really well. Abari, etise, mache, mingabo, baoni, Kedu, Mbote, Ndemne, Bonsoir. Join me, Richard Mwamba, for a music show on Channel Africa called Africa in Song every Saturday and Sunday from 18 to 20 hours Central African time. Africa in Song, Saturday and Sunday from 18 to 20 hours Central African time. Let's talk about it. Hi, I'm Joe Mangria. And I'm Tabitha Jala. Join us at 9 a.m. Central African Time. Let's, Let's talk, talk about it. A program on AIDS and other social issues. A program that will encourage a positive lifestyle to young people affected and infected. Let's, Let's talk, talk about, about it at 9 a.m. Central African Time on Channel Africa. Our economics update up next with Tabiso Lohoku. Good morning. South Africa's trade union, NUMSA, has accused a power utility, ESCOM, of negotiating in bad faith after the power utility insisted that it would not accede to the union's demands that employees who were involved in acts of sabotage during an unprotected strike should not face a disciplinary action. The prices, or rather the parties, have now delayed the signing of the wage agreement. The unions have accepted the latest offer, which includes a 787,000 US dollar once of payment to workers who fall under the bargaining unit, plus a 7.5% salary increase this year and another 7% for the next two years. NUMSA spokesperson Pagamile Lubimachola. It's clear to all unions that the overall strategy adopted by ESCOM is that they want to dismiss our members for having demonstrated during these talks. We can also confirm that the only... The Democratic Nursing Organization of South Africa, DINASA, has warned that its members in public hospitals will embark on a passive protest against the gain if a government does not give them adequate uniform allowances. It says if members will take the drastic measures and swap uniforms or for pyjamas, if health department delays the payment of their adjusted allowances. Dinosa President Simon Shongwani says that the provincial health department should have been paid out the allowances in April this year. Kenya's Pan-African Mortgage Financier, Shelter Afrique, is set to lay off for 13 employees in a bid to cut costs. The firm says the job cuts are in line with the reorganization plan 
to turn around its fortunes. A statement says that the implementation of a new strategy has necessitated a realignment of the organization's structure and resourcing. Shelter Africa, which is owned by 44 African countries, together with the African Development Bank and African Reinsurance, has been trying to regain its footing in the wake of accounting scandals and bad loans that pushed it into a financial crisis. An Estonian ride-hailing company aiming to take on Uber in emerging markets, Taxify, will invest in Africa, East Africa, in the next five years with a strategy focused on motorized rickshaws and motorcycles. The company, which already operates in five cities in Kenya, Uganda and Tanzania, says it will continue to offer regular car rides via taxi services and locally popular forms of motorized transport. In East Africa, that means... Boda Bodas and Bajajis, also called Tak-Taks in South Africa. Local terms for motorcycles and rickshaws, respectively. Oil prices have edged upon on worries that reimposed United States sanctions against Iran would tighten supplies, although the escalating trade dispute between Washington and Beijing held markets back from further gains. Despite the possibility of a slowdown in economic growth due to escalating trade uh, tensions, oil markets are for now relatively tight. The US dollar trades at 10.16 Botswana Pula. It's at 992 in Zambia. In BRICS currencies, it's trading at 378 Brazilian roll. At 66.5 Russian ruble and at 68.50 Indian rupee. 681 Chinese yuan and 13.53 to the South African rand. 77 pence to the British pound, 86 cents to the euro. Gold 1,000, $212. Platinum, $831 an ounce. The price of brand crude oil is at $72.17 a barrel. From an African perspective, you're listening to Channel Africa. Up next... Our sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. First up in our sports update this hour, we begin with golf news. South African golfer Louis Osaisen has pulled out of the 100th PGA Championship at the Belle Reve Country Club in St. Louis. Ostezen withdrew less than an hour before his scheduled tea time, giving American Katie Kraft a spot in the field at Bellarive. The official announcement was made about 10 minutes before Ostezen's scheduled tea time. Though Kraft had been warming up in case he got a chance, he joined the group along with Thomas Peters and Bill Haas. And on to local football news, the Orlando Pirates of South Africa, coach Milotin Micho Srejodovic is adamant. His side is ready to send the defending champions packing in the MTN8 quarterfinal at Orlando Stadium south of Johannesburg on Saturday evening. Srejodovic says he is happy with his players' mental and tactical strength two games into the new season and expects them to show their pedigree against tough Supersport United side.
from the mental point, from the fitness, technical and tactical point, uh, we are looking at this competition as a possible springboard that could uh, push us into the season in front of us. Teams having strategy for the season are looking uh, properly to enter in competitive form in month of August and then uh, to keep that spike of competitive form throughout uh, October, November, December. Having in mind that we are in five competitions, including Cup Champions League, we really need to strategize and to give and to lift ourselves match by match to improve and to get every match better. And chance for and such a test is in Saturday. Yes, it is third match in a row in seven days. So we know that both teams will give everything on the field of play because it is to a die clash. Super Sports coach Kaitano Tembo says he, the desire to defend the MTN8 trophy serves as a right tonic ahead of the class against Orlando Pirates. Uh, to win this tournament, you need to play maybe probably four games and you win the tournament. And I think uh, and players as well. They can see it as a way, as an easy way as well of making, you know, money. But at the same time, we've got to take it as, a, a, you know, you've got to take it in an, you know, you know, in an overall picture, whereby you planning ahead. We need to play. There's still about about thirty something games, you know, to still to play. So it's not just about going out there and win the tournament. Because that's why sometimes you win the tournament and later on you start struggling because you've given your all only in this tournament. But we try and you know approach this tournament as if we're coming from preseason and we're building up gradually. In athletics, South Africa's Nelson Mandela University athlete, HK Senegal, will represent Africa at the International Association of Athletics Federation, the IAAF 2018. Continental Cup in September in Ostrava, Czech Republic next month. She cemented a place with a gold medal performance at the recent African Senior Athletics Championships in Asaba in Nigeria. The IAAF Continental Cup, formerly known as the IAAF World Cup, is an international athletics competition which comprises track and field events. It is the only World Cup contested by teams representing entire continents rather than just those of individual countries. The event takes place every four years. And finally, Olympic champion Chad Leclaw highlighted the first day of the 2018 South African National Swimming Championship at the Kings Park Aquatic Center in Durban on Thursday. Leclaw was the first swimmer to qualify for the 14th FINA World Swimming Short Course Championships in China from the 11th to the 16th of December 2018. He ducked below the 100-meter freestyle qualifying during the morning heats before doing it again in the final clocking a winning time of 46.45 seconds. 20-year-old Zane Wandel posted a qualifying time of 47.54 seconds, finishing second behind the claw. Commonwealth Games bronze medalist Ryan Kutze finished third with a time of 48.23 seconds. That's the Sport News this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai.
Recapping our top stories, in Africa rise and shine at the Sawa, Zimbabwe's opposition leader Tendai Biti returns to court today to face public violence charges. And Chile's Michelle Bachelet chosen to be the next UN human rights chief. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumutura Magadza and Jane Rabutata, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.org, WhatsApp on 277-6300327 or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Are taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa is Ali Cat with a song titled Let the Good Times Roll. Ha ha ha!